we are at the point in our story in Luke where I thought that that was a very appropriate psalm because Jesus died and uh, has been raised but has not yet fully manifested himself to all of his believers, all of his followers. And so I, I wonder if they themselves were singing that psalm in their hearts. Um, before we get into that, though, let me, uh, I would love for you to turn to Luke chapter 24, but I want to give you a, a few updates on some other things. Um, if you got my email this week, I hope you did, uh, I had in there that our church is in need of some additional help. And to follow through on that, I've created this little binder for you in case you're not the type of person who reads emails. And I'm going to put this on our welcome table back here. What it is, is it just has a bunch of different job descriptions where we continue to need uh, help around Maricopa Springs. Some of these things are more involved. Others are pretty simple, and you could do them probably one or two Sundays a, a month and really bless our community. So I'm going to put that on the table back there, and I would love for you, if you're not already serving somewhere, to, to just take a look through that binder at some point. In addition to that, in, a, in the email, I mentioned our family churches, and uh, we are plugging forward with those full steam ahead. And uh, I know some of you have been in this third group that's been kind of a little... Um, without direction, and I'm, I'm very, very close to having information for you on that. But the point is this. If you're not involved in one of our family churches, we want you to come be part of one of those groups. Uh, if you ask those who've been involved in our family churches how that experience has been for them, I think overall you're going to get very positive feedback. The, my point is just this. There's so much more to the body of Christ than just gathering together for an hour on Sunday morning. And my heart for you is that you would uh, belong to that bigger experience of what it means to be part of the family of Jesus. So um, I wanted to just mention those things. There's more information on our website about family churches if you're curious or come talk to me. Uh, somebody mentioned to me last week that, that, that uh, they were at another church and, and this other church prayed for other churches in their community. And I thought that's a beautiful thing. And I have done that very generally before. So this week I emailed uh, the pastor of Calvary Chapel and um, we are going to pray for them before I pray and it's also been on my, or as I pray and it's also been on my heart to pray for the cove. Um, so let me pray and then we'll jump into Luke chapter 24. God, you are so good and I pray that like your word says, we would hope in you and your word promises that those who hope in you will not be disappointed. They will not be put to shame. And I pray that as our hope is in you, that uh, our spirits would ascend with your Holy Spirit, that we would be encouraged to press on and to love you more. Um, Father, I pray for Calvary Chapel and Roger Thompson and his congregation. Lord, we pray that they would be a church where people love God and love other people. I, I pray that for Maricopa Springs as well. Um, I pray for Pastor Roger that he would be effective in teaching them your word and that he would rely on your spirit to do that. I pray for their home fellowship groups, like our family churches, that they would be a manifestation of your body where people can grow and love one another and be humbled and encouraged, lifted up and um, challenged to pursue you with all of their hearts. I pray for their upcoming junior high and senior high camp in Prescott, Lord, that that, that would be um, a fruitful time for their students. And Lord, we just pray that you would make their church effective in reflecting 
your light like Rick was just praying. Father, I also pray for our children in the back of our building this morning, the cove. Father, with my own children back there, you know my desire for these kids to effectively be taught what a beautiful God and Savior you are. I pray that you would save those kids and change their hearts and work through their parents to teach them about what a good Lord you are. I pray that you would use our our Sunday school for that as well. Bless the teachers back there. Refresh them and encourage them as they lead those kids. And I pray for our time, God, that you would make it fruitful as well, that we would be challenged and encouraged to love you and that we would see you move in our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, We do quite a lot of praying at Maricopa Springs, I realize, and I love that. I'm I'm glad. Thank you for being part of that. Uh, If you're not already in Luke chapter 24, turn there. We're going to read verses 28 through 35, and let me do that, and then we'll jump into this. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So we sort of stopped halfway through our scene uh, of the text last week, and we're jumping into part two of that now this morning. And so let me just kind of refresh you of the whole picture, right? Uh, There's a meeting between Jesus and two of his disciples, followers on the road to Emmaus, And Jesus has risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. He's now begun to reveal himself alive to his friends and followers. And in one of those instances, the one that we're looking at, sort of like a ninja, he kind of inserts himself into this situation where these guys are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus, two men on a journey, and and without them realizing what's going on, he comes alongside of them and begins to interact with them. And as they're walking and talking on their journey, one of the things that Jesus does is he summarizes all of the law of Moses and the prophets for these guys to show them, to teach them about how the writings of the Old Testament show God's purposes for the salvation of mankind through the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one. And what he essentially does is show that the Scriptures teach that God's Son, the Messiah, would die, and then he would rise from the dead. And through that action, he would then secure the forgiveness of sins for all of those who would put their faith and trust in that Messiah. And these men are so captivated by this message that as their journey comes to an end and the sun goes down, and they reach the point that they've been journeying to. They, they, they beg Jesus, who they don't even know it's him, but they beg him, still in disguise, come, come stay with us, come tell us more, come teach us further things about what you've been saying. 
And what I want to kind of do in this particular uh, text this morning is, is sort of go old school Baptist on you, okay? I want to break the text down into four Ps that I want you to see, okay? These men, I think, model for us four Ps, and I want to draw them out for you. I have a slide, and I'll just leave it up there so you don't get lost. I hope, did we get it? Yes. Okay. So here they are. First, they petition Jesus. Then their perception changes. Then their passion is kindled, and they engage in proclamation. Those are the four things I want to show you from our text this morning, okay? As the narrative unfolds, we find that these two men, they have their lives really radically changed in this moment as they encounter the risen Lord Jesus. And this transformation, I think, comes in the form of these four Ps, okay? Petition, perception, passion, and proclamation. So let's look first at their petition, verses 28 and 29. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, And Jesus acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward the evening. The day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. These men had a boldness to ask this stranger to come and stay with them because they were eager to hear more about what he had begun to tell them. And they didn't know that it was Jesus, but regardless, they urged Jesus not to leave them, to come in and spend the evening with them. I think that ultimately they were asking him to spend the night with them, right? It's dark. You don't travel in the ancient world uh, on dangerous roads at night. And there's a wonderful little nugget in here where it says that Jesus acted as if he were going to go on further on his journey, but then he changed his mind. He altered his plans to go in and stay with them. And I think the point here that I want you to see is that in the heart of Jesus, he wanted these men to invite him to come in, to spend more time with them. And how good of our God that of all of the really important things that he could be doing and that he is doing in the midst of all of the things that occupy his mind, all of the things on his to-do list, let's say, at the top of that, he desires to spend time with us. That is an incredible idea. You may think that your relationship with God, and I, I wrestle with this sometimes, is, is me constantly seeking God. Like, He's there, and I, you know, I need to do more work to pursue Him, to chase Him. It, it's, it's the effort of me seeking God, knocking on His door, pleading with Him, begging Him to spend time with me, as if I'm constantly fighting for His attention. But in fact, it's totally the other way around, isn't it? Let's be honest. God is the one who is constantly seeking us, constantly knocking on our door in the hopes that we will open our hearts to Him, laboring to get our attention, that we would spend just a little bit more time with Him in the midst of everything else that we have going on. And so I want you to understand, don't be confused into thinking that you have a greater desire for Jesus than He has for you. I assure you, Christ longs for you with an affection far beyond what you could ever comprehend. It was the desire of Jesus in this moment, even though he sort of made it seem as if he intended to go on, it was the desire of his heart that these men would invite him to come in and spend more time with them. And when they boldly asked him for more of his time, Jesus gave it to them freely. 
And these two men are a wonderful example for us in their petition because what they ask for is more of Jesus. The time with him is coming to an end and they don't just sort of bid him farewell. Instead, they petition him to spend more time with him. In the Bible, in the book of James, we're told that if we want God to draw near, we have to draw near to God. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In other words, petition God for more of his time, for a deeper, more full relationship with him. And you can be sure that because that's what he already wants, he will respond. If we look through Scripture, we find some other amazing examples of this. Moses actually has the boldness to say to God, show me your glory. And God acquiesces. He gives Moses the answer to that request. Moses literally asked to see God in all of his splendor, his glory, his majesty, and God gives him the answer to that prayer. King David writes in Psalm 4, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David asks, expecting that God will, and God does. The Apostle Paul prays for the church and his friends. He says that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul asks for the church and for his friends that they would have more of God, that God would be closer, that God would dwell in their hearts. And he does it knowing that God will respond because God's desire for his people is that. And these men then on the road to Emmaus, they make a good request of Jesus. They say, come stay with us. Spend more time with us. Come, come fellowship with us. And so the question I have for you is then, what do you petition God for? When you say your prayers, when you make requests of God, what do you ask for? What do you request? What do you petition for God for more of? Um, When I put my kids to bed at night, I spend a moment and I pray with them. And my prayers aren't long like they are here at church sometimes. They're not complicated. They're pretty simple, right? And there are so many things that I could pray for, and sometimes I do, right? I, I pray for you. I pray for our church. I pray for our family and sometimes our extended family members. I pray even sometimes for more mundane things like a good night's sleep or a good rest of our week, those kinds of things, right? But do you know what I always pray for for my children every single night without fail? I pray for my children that God would fill them up with his Holy Spirit. That of all the things that God could do for them, I petition that God would give more of himself to my children. Because there's nothing greater that God could give to them than more of himself. There's no greater thing to ask for than that God would give God to my children. And friends, I want you to understand, it's a good thing to ask God for help with your finances, your job, your career, your behavior, your health, your stress level, your work, whatever else might be on your mind. It's a good thing to do that. But the most important thing that you can ask God for is the very same thing that these men petitioned Jesus for. More of him. More of him. And the response that Jesus gives should give us 
should give us great hope and great encouragement when we see how Jesus responds to that petition. What does he do? He changes his plans. He, he doesn't move on. He goes in and spends time with them. He gives them more of himself. And as they receive more of Jesus, something wonderful happens. The second P, right? They're blessed with a new perception. Look at verses 30 and 31. When he was at table with them, Jesus took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Jesus opens their eyes, and as a result, they perceive the world in a whole new way. As they spend time together, Jesus blesses these men with a new perception. He takes the bread, he breaks it, he blesses it, which of course is a symbol and a reminder of communion, right? That the body of Christ was given for his people, that they might be blessed. And in this moment of experiencing communion with Jesus, unbeknownst to them, suddenly their view is transformed. And here are two guys who, up until this moment, they're discouraged. They're confused. They're depressed. They're down and out. Their dreams and hopes of a Savior in this man, Jesus, have been dashed to pieces as as they've watched him be crucified and put in a tomb. The world has crumbled around them as they watched their friend and leader, Jesus, be put to death on a Roman cross. And as far as they can tell, in this moment, the world is is a dark and dreary place. It is hopeless for these men. Many years ago in college, I was suffering from depression, and I was in therapy. And um, as I observed the world around me in this season of life, everything was just miserable. Everything made me feel miserable. Life was tedious. It was depressing. Everywhere I looked, I saw something to complain about, to be upset about, something to discourage me, to make me angry and sad. It was as if the whole world was just this miserable place, an awful place. And fortunately, I had a Christian therapist, and he helped me see that the world was a miserable place because I wanted the world to be a miserable place. I was making my experience of the world miserable because I chose to have a perspective that the world was a place of misery. I constantly was choosing to have a perspective that everything was awful, and so guess what? Everything was awful. And if you, one of the things my therapist actually said to me, he said, if you spend your day looking for the color red, guess what? You're going to see the color of red everywhere that you look, everywhere you go. And so my miserable perspective was this self-perpetuating cycle. See, I was miserable, so I saw misery. The more I saw misery, the more it made me miserable. The more miserable I I became, the more I chose to see misery. And what broke the self-perpetuating cycle was Jesus. Jesus helping me see that the world is not a miserable place. And this is why the Bible tells us, set your mind on things above where Christ is. Renew your mind with the truth of God's Word. Look to Jesus Christ, and in the light of His glory, you will begin to see things the way that they actually are. You will see Christ everywhere. Christ hounding your neighbors. 
Christ providing a way in your career, Christ opening doors, Christ renewing your heart, Christ lifting you up. And as Christians, we have to have a new perspective on the world, a right perspective, a true perspective, a good perspective, a biblical perspective. Christians should never be negative or discouraged for long periods of time or hopeless because what they need to do in those moments is renew their perspective. And we have every reason to be joyful, to be courageous, to experience praise in our hearts because we serve a good God. And what happened for these men over dinner is that Jesus opened their eyes and he gave them a new perspective so that they could see the world as it really was. Not miserable, despairing, and depressing because their leader and friend had died, but incredible, amazing because Jesus had been risen from the dead and he was king and victorious over death. That this good and gracious and kind and gentle God actually ruled all nations and all creation. He was sovereign over time itself even. The greatest enemy of man, death, was now defeated and humiliated by Jesus. Misery had been conquered by joy. Darkness chased away by light. Despair overtaken by resurrection hope. And I want you to know, friends, since Jesus died and rose from the dead, since Christ gave his body that we might be redeemed, you need to see, in fact, actually because this has happened, the problem of pain, the problem of evil itself dissolves. Right? Many people will say, how can there be a good and all-powerful God if the world is filled with so much misery? That's the problem of evil. And I want you to understand, in light of Christ, the problem of evil dissolves and is replaced by the solution of Christ. And so we don't need to ask God any longer, God, what in the world is wrong with this place? Instead, our request needs to be, God, help me see everything in light of Christ. And in the light of Christ, the problem of evil dissipates because our God is good. And like these men, we need a new perspective to lift us from darkness into light. We need to see the world that it, the way that it really is under the kind and wonderful loving care of our good and gracious Savior. And so I want to challenge you. I mean, I know that in this room, some of you are going through things that are incredibly difficult. And I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you, whatever you might be going through, to renew your minds, renew your hearts with the truth of God's Word. Allow Jesus to give you a new and right perspective that if He is risen, then things will be okay. That if He is Lord, He will work it out for your good and His glory. And I want you to see that when we have our perspective right, then a passion begins to stir within us. Our third P. Look at verse 32. They said to each other after Jesus has vanished, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The right response to a right perspective is passion. 
I mean, if these men had broken bread with Jesus and then had had their eyes opened to his resurrection power, and then they sort of shrugged their shoulders and were like, meh, we would think that they were emotionally dead. We would think there was something intensely, profoundly wrong with them that they didn't understand how different everything was now that a man had died and been risen back to life. And seeing the living God produces passion. Seeing the living, risen Jesus Christ produces passion. And honestly, my friends, I'm afraid, and I'm going to be a little critical in these last two points about the church in America, the country we live in. I'm afraid that the church in America is running low on passion. I'm afraid that our hearts don't burn with a white-hot affection for Jesus like they should. And let me try and explain what I mean. I think when people hear the word passion, they wrongly assume that passion means emotion. If you are passionate about something, then you are emotional about something. You feel strong feelings about something. And I want you to know, actually, nothing could be further from the truth. That is a wrong description of passion. Passion has almost nothing to do with feelings. Passion has almost nothing to do with emotion. Passion, get this, please, passion is consumption. Think about it like burning. When you light logs on fire, they give off heat. I would say that's the emotion. That's the feeling. But the heat is not actually what is happening. What's really taking place is that the burning object, the wood, is being consumed. We like to go camping when we light a fire and sit around it at night. The logs begin to burn. When we wake up in the morning, where are the logs? They're gone. They have been consumed in the process. And the same is true of passion. It is not mere emotion It is the process of being consumed by God, having him captivate your whole heart and your whole life so that even if you don't feel something in any given moment, even if the emotion eludes you for a season, God still consumes you and your heart still burns. Passion is not emotion, although it may stir emotion within you, Rather, passion is the process whereby our souls are consumed by Jesus for his good, for his purposes, for his pleasure. And if you go into any number of churches, and maybe we're guilty of this sometimes at Maricopa Springs, or you listen to any number of worship songs that make it onto the radio or to popular CDs, you might hear frantic emotion in what people say or what they sing. Your heart might be stirred with warm feelings in the process of listening. And there's a heavy emphasis on that feeling. But then if you observe the lives of many people who call themselves Christians, their lives are not, in fact, consumed by Jesus. If the warm, fuzzy feelings fade, so does the passion. So does the commitment and I don't know whether this is true or sure, uh, for sure, but I've heard, maybe it was Doug who told me this, that in the prison camps in North Korea, 
Christians gather in the pits of the outhouses to pray together and sing psalms and read the fragments of scriptures that they've managed to smuggle into the prison camps. Because they are so passionate about gathering together to worship Jesus that their souls burn with a desire to do so. They are so consumed with a need to surrender themselves to Jesus. And the only safe place for them to be able to do that is the one place where the guards won't dare to go, down into the crap hole of the toilet. And if that was the only place that you could go to gather with other Christians to praise Jesus, would you go? Would you be so consumed with a desire for him that you would do that? Would your passion for Christ compel you? Or would there be sort of a lack of feeling with the disgusting smell and the horrible location that you would bow out? Let me say it another way. The Latin origin of our English word passion, do you know what it means? It actually means suffering. It doesn't mean love or warm, fuzzy feelings. It means suffering. Jesus was passionate about his people, which is why he suffered to save them. He didn't do it because it felt good. I assure you, the beatings, the humiliation, the mockery, the crucifixion, the separation from his father, none of that felt good. The passion of Christ is not the emotional intensity of Jesus. Rather, it is all that Jesus suffered out of love for you to redeem you. It wasn't emotion that put Jesus on the cross. It was a consuming passion. And so consider the state of your heart for a second. How much does your heart burn for Jesus? How much passion do you feel for him, whether the emotion is there or not? Is your heart consumed with Christ? Let me ask it in a couple of other ways for you to think about, like, what would this actually look like? When was the last time that you suffered anything to show Jesus that you love him? I'm not suggesting that you go looking for suffering. Please don't. But following Christ requires daily suffering. When was the last time that you considered all that Christ sacrificed when he gave up his body and his blood for you? We're going to give you an opportunity in a few minutes to do that as you take communion. And I encourage you to think about all that Christ did out of passion for you. Does the burning in your heart for Jesus lead you to be consumed by him and for him? Or does he sort of get whatever leftovers you can muster on the side? Maybe a few more pertinent questions. Have you given up any of your time lately to say thank you to Jesus? Have you given up any of your money lately because your heart is consumed by him? Have you turned off the TV to pray to him instead of just watch TV? Have you sacrificed any of your comfort or your security lately? Have you given up anything at all in order to deny the world and follow after Jesus? I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I I just want to maybe lead you to a moment where you cry out to Jesus, give me a greater passion for you 
that I would be willing to be consumed and burned up and have nothing left because my heart's desire is for you. Many of Jesus' closest followers who saw him risen from the dead, they would end up dying out of passion for Jesus. They didn't do it because it felt good. They did it because their hearts burned with an all-consuming desire for him. And passion for Jesus means our hearts burn for him. And when our hearts catch fire, then we allow all of our lives to be consumed for Christ's sake. Part of that burning, part of that passion, part of that consumption presents itself in our fourth and final P, which is proclamation. And actually, Rick specifically used that word as he was talking about how we reflect the light of Christ to the world. Proclamation. Look at verses 33 to 35. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then these two men told what had happened on the road and how Christ was known to them in the breaking of bread. When these men understood what had happened, they rose at that very hour to rush back to Jerusalem to tell their friends what had happened. Uh, I want you to understand a couple of things here. Jerusalem is, is on the crest of a hill. So their road, their journey to Emmaus was downhill. They'd had a long journey. It was the end of the day. And they didn't pause to think about the fact that they would now be journeying back uphill on the very same day. Whatever purpose they'd had for their original journey to Emmaus, it hadn't been fulfilled yet. It was nighttime. They went home. Whatever business took them there was going to have to take place the next day. But they didn't wait. They immediately headed back to Jerusalem. It was dark. It was dangerous. The roads were not safe to travel on at night, and that didn't deter them. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, more than likely, as they got there, they would have expected their friends to be in bed. And that didn't deter them either. They were ready to go pound on the doors and share to their friends this proclamation. We saw Jesus. The passion they felt for Christ welled up within them. And it became a proclamation. Jesus had risen from the dead. How could they not tell people this amazing reality? And I don't know if you're aware of this, but the church in America is dying. You probably don't like, or probably unlike me, don't follow church statistics. I wouldn't expect you to. But I want to make you aware of this. The church in America is dying. Along with our lack of passion is a lack of proclamation. Statistically, those who call themselves Bible-believing, Christ-centered Christians is a shrinking category in our country. And do you know what other statistic matches that decline almost perfectly? The number of Christians who say that on a regular basis they proclaim their faith. In other words, the church is dying because fewer and fewer Christians are proclaiming Jesus. Now, I believe Jesus is going to build his church because he promises that. He's going to continue to do that. The church is never going to wink out of existence. But we have a responsibility to let the passion we feel for Jesus become a proclamation of his goodness. And I think if I asked in this room this morning for people to stand, I thought about making you actually do this, but then I thought it would be cruel. But if I asked in this room this morning for people to stand up 
If in the last week you have shared with somebody just the beautiful wonder of Jesus, I wonder how many of you could stand up. What if I pushed it back a month? I, I think it would probably be a small minority. And I'm, I, I think I could go into just about every church in America and ask that question, and a small minority would stand up. And I want to confess to you, I'm, I'm broken in this because I couldn't stand up. I would have to sit down. And I'm not talking about leading somebody to Jesus and getting them to pray some prayer of faith and repentance. I'm just referring to something as simple as telling someone who is not a Christian how amazingly wonderful Jesus is, how much you love him, how much he's done for you, how much he's changed your life. I'm just talking about proclaiming his excellence. But look at these two men when they encounter Jesus risen from the dead. They run out into the night desperate to find those who don't yet know that Christ is risen to tell them what has happened. Their perception has been changed. Their passion has been kindled. And as a result, they feel this desperate need to proclaim the truth of the resurrection. I want to take you through a small exercise right now before I close this out, okay? I want you to bow your head. Close your eyes and just put your head down. And I want to ask you to think of the name of one person in your life who doesn't yet know the beautiful truth that Jesus rose from the dead. It could be a neighbor, it could be a coworker, it could be a friend. And with your head bowed, I'm going to give you a moment of just silence here. I want you to pray in your heart silently that God would give you a chance to proclaim this good news to them. And let me warn you about the power, the dangerousness of prayer. I'm asking you to do this, and I believe that if you pray, God will give you the opportunity, and so be careful what you pray for. And it doesn't need to be complicated. Your prayer could sound something like this. Lord Jesus, give me an opportunity to proclaim the good news to Mike. Just start with that simple prayer and let God do the rest. And if you can't think of anyone, then pray that God would put somebody in your life. So I'm going to shut up, and I want you to pray that prayer. Now I want you to do one more thing. Either take out your smartphone and your note app, or a pen and a piece of paper, and I want you to write that name down somewhere. Because this is not a one-and-done type thing. I, I want you to commit to pray for that person and watch and see the mi miracles that God might do through that prayer and look for an opportunity to proclaim the goodness of Jesus to them. I didn't see anybody move when I said, take out your phone. You already had them because you were reading your Bibles. Okay, I'm serious. Text it to yourself Put it in a note app. Email it to yourself. Write it down somewhere. And I want you to pray, and I'm going to do that with you. I'm going to commit to that too. So I want to just reiterate, I think in our passage of Scripture, we see that the Christian life consists of these things. A petition that God would give us more of himself. A change in perception now that Jesus is the risen Lord. A burning passion 
to be consumed by him and a compelling proclamation to tell the world that Christ is risen. We're going to take communion now together and just like these two men in our text, I want you to know the privilege that you have to be able to break bread with Jesus Christ. The way we're going to do uh, communion this morning is in tinction, so you'll see there's some tables around the back of the room, and what I want to invite you to do is when our worship team begins to play music, you're free to just make your way to one of the tables, and you'll find a cracker and juice there. You can just dip the cracker in the juice and eat it right there. And don't rush to the table. This is an opportunity for you to maybe pray some more for the person whose name came to mind or to give God thanks or to ask him to put that burning passion in your heart, or to forgive you of your sins, and to be joyful in his grace. And I want to remind you too, if you're not a Christian, please don't make your way to the table. Um, This is just not for you. It's for those of us who call Jesus Lord, and you could call him Lord by turning your heart to him now, but this is for those who uh, sit at his table with him. And I think that uh, I want to leave you with just one simple idea. The elements that you're going to pick up, the cracker and the juice, they represent the life and death of Jesus. The cracker is a symbol of his body, which was sacrificed for your salvation. The juice, a symbol of his blood, which was spilled to atone for your sins. Jesus gave up so much for you. In fact, he could not have given up more. And he did it because of a deep and passionate love for you and a deep and passionate love for his Father. And as you eat the cracker and the juice, I want to encourage you to give God thanks for his grace. And I encourage you also to simply make as a part of your prayer the request of God, how else, God, might you want me to respond to your grace? Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that we would be people bold to petition you for more of you. That our perspective would change and we would see everything through Christ. That our passion would grow and we would be consumed for you. And that, Lord, we would be as a part of this bold to proclaim the beauty of Jesus. We thank you for your body. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for the grace that you have given us in your own sacrifice. And Jesus, I pray that we would be people who hold your body and your blood in high regard, that we wouldn't do this act of taking communion with insincere hearts or as just a routine act that we do, but instead our hearts would be filled with wonder and gratitude and praise for all of your goodness and kindness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.